0: Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a 40 minute conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by acting president and CEO of Planned Parenthood Federation of America and the Planned Parenthood Action Fund, Alexis McGill Johnson, where we discuss the current state of reproductive rights and the politics surrounding Planned Parenthood. I'm nervous. <laughs> I look way more nervous than normal.
1: I'm so excited.
0: (laughs) Um, It's like subject matter and who I'm interviewing. It's so much. Okay, ready? I'm ready. Okay, great. Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. And um, buckle up, buttercup. This is going to be an episode. Uh, Welcome, Alexis McGill Johnson, Acting President and CEO of Planned Parenthood Federation of America and the Planned Parenthood Action Fund.
1: Thank you for having me, Jonathan.
0: Thanks so much for coming. Um, So tell me, this is off-subject, and we might as well bring in a little levity. Tell me what your morning was, because you are giving me impossibly balanced CEO fighting for equality, fighting for public health, like, in New York City. Like, you're (laughs) nailing life, I feel like. You're, like, I'm obsessed with your team from Planned Parenthood. It's, like, a well-oiled machine. Like, we are nailing it. I just want to hear about your morning.
1: Oh, my goodness. My morning, I got up. I've got a seven-year-old and a ten-year-old. I dropped the girls off at school, very girl-power school of town. Walk the dog, came back, walked the dog, had a school meeting, and then I got a call from uh, a senator, Senator Murray, who was working on uh, Title Ten, uh, making sure that it gets restored in the spending bill. So I had like a fifteen-minute call with her on my way down, uh, pack my bag. I'm on my way to D.C. right after I after I uh, finish with you uh, to head into Congressional Black Caucus weekend, so I can continue being CEO. Uh, but the amazing, amazing team at Planned Parenthood, like people. Planned Parenthood people are so passionate about the mission, they are so passionate about the people that we serve, Every single day, and so it's just such a pleasure. It's like the service gives us power, the people give us power, and that just like wakes me up every morning, wanting to do more.
0: Um, I mean, not that many people get to talk to senators, you know, every morning about such important um, subject matter and such uh, life saving programs. So, uh, you know, Title Ten is something that I'm um, blessed to have an understanding of what it is, and I'm also blessed to understand how important it is uh, because um, it helps so many people, and I am able to read the news and everyone needs to read the news but for people that are listening that maybe don't know what Title Ten is can you give them what that is.
1: Absolutely. So Title 10 is um our oldest is a 50-year-old program. Um our nation's affordable access to birth control, to STI testing, to cancer screenings. It it's a um it's a set of grants that helps states and providers actually offer this testing at low to no cost. And so if you walk into a Planned Parenthood health center or another provider and you're able to, you know, uh, you you need an STI screening, you're concerned about something that's happening, um, it's okay for our health centers to be able to say, um, you know, essentially, what can you afford, and um, and you can be treated on a sliding scale. So it doesn't limit your access to healthcare. It actually encourages you to to participate in the healthcare system. So, you know, we were forced
0: out. And so, really quickly, why Title Ten is so important now and always has been is is really, if you don't have insurance and you don't have money. And you, you're, my pee hole is burning. I am having some, I don't feel right, you know, but I also don't have insurance. Um, Where do you go? What do you do? Like, that is something, or maybe I'm pregnant and I don't have insurance. Like, there could be so many things that are going on. And, you know, Planned Parenthood is classically, uh You know, it is on the first line of defense for people that are underserved and don't have the resources to obtain proper health care. And I think that one thing that a lot of Republicans and, you know— the new Republicans, which is like the more racist, fascist Republican Trump Pence administration. Cause I do think that Title X historically has enjoyed very bipartisan support. Um, and in the 80s and 90s, like this wasn't, I mean, abortion was never a militarized, um, uh, political issue until like that Phyllis Shafley or Shape. Who is she? What? This is really offset. We don't like her. She was like this, like 80s, like, I think she's like, why, uh, there are so people like her in this like um, conservative movement. It is it is gone to like vilify and weaponize people needing healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, period. Hundred percent. So when you say that the Trump administration forced Planned Parenthood out of Title Ten, what? So and just really quickly because I got upset again. <laughs> Title Ten is it is a set of grants that Planned Parenthood is entitled that has been entitled to that uh, that enables them to offer STI testing pregnancy assistance to people that have low income and no insurance.
1: Absolutely. And we are actually Title X's largest provider. So we serve 40% of Title X patients across a number of states. And so it is kind of critical that Planned Parenthood was picked on in this way. Um, But essentially what happened was that um, on August 19th, we were forced out of the program uh, because the Trump administration decided to enforce a gag rule, which – essentially ask our providers or, or stipulated that, that our providers, if a patient came to us and they were pregnant and they were seeking information on abortion, that our providers couldn't refer them to information on it. They could refer them to prenatal care. But they couldn't actually tell them anything about abortion, providers, where to get information on it. How is that
0: enforced? It.
1: So it is—how is what enforced? The gag rule? Like,
0: yeah. Like, I mean, so let's say that a, a person goes in and they, want, and they want abortion services. And they ask specifically to the provider at Planned Parenthood, like, I want— Abortion services. That doctor has their hands tied and is not, they're just like, I can't tell you anything. Yes.
1: And so that is why it's called a gag rule because it's literally a gag in your mouth. The provider literally cannot say, uh, it, all the provider can say is, I cannot tell you information about that. And so what does that mean for a provider, right? I mean, when you come into a center and you come in, um, you know, as a patient wanting to get the best qualified information, you're not out on the internet, Dr. Googling yourself, right? You are actually, it, you have made a choice to go to a provider to get the best care, the best quality information. And then that that provider can't give you that information. We just think that's, a, you know, that's unethical. We think that is substandard care. And um, essentially, the Trump administration decided to bully us out.
0: What do you think the ultimate goal is of the Trump Pence administration in doing that? I mean, if there's an X amount of numbers that Title X has to use, you know, um, for STI testing for people, for uh, for um, reproductive care for people, where does the where does that money? Who's going to use that now? Like, is it just gonna going to be go into thin air because it it can't be used? Is there gonna is there enough providers to even disseminate that care to people?
1: No, and the providers who are in the network have already come out on record to say that they cannot absorb the number of patients who would need access um, under Title X. So that's like one thing. Where they are sending the money are to groups like Obrea Group, right, crisis pregnancy centers that don't even provide access to contraception. They don't they obviously don't tell you about uh, about abortion at all, but they don't even provide access to contraception, right? So even the, the intent of the program is being um, undermined by these political attacks tax and you know, let's make, let's be like 100% clear here. This is not just about access to STI screenings or birth control. This is a coordinated attack, right? This is a coordinated attack um, on Title X, on the number of abortion bans that we've seen since I joined the board ten, almost 10 years ago, right, when you're talking about when when this work started to get incredibly politicized. We've seen almost 450 bans on abortion. We've seen 26 just this year passing. Um, so we've got Title X. We've got abortion bans in the hundreds. We've got a number of conservative uh, judges that are making their way through the Supreme Court, uh, through the um, circuit courts and being confirmed. And we have about 15 or 16 cases that are winding their way up to the Supreme Court uh, in an attempt to reverse Roe and to put that baby right on Justice Kavanaugh's desk so that they can— um, Essentially ban access for women. That's the strategy.
0: And in the event of that, if they did overturn Roe, it would basically be reversed to the states and state Supreme Courts to make their to do to create new laws around abortion and access to abortion, access to reproductive health care. Just the whole thing.
1: Yes. So we kick it back to the states. Some states have been active in terms of codifying Roe already in legislative states like New York and um California, Illinois. Um, other states still have to do that work, right? So in Michigan, it would kick it back, I think, to like the uh, 1930s law around um around abortion. So it's there's there's a lot of work that has to be done even in advance of that being the scariest possibility of you know Handmaid's Tale being being real.
0: So. For the gag rule, I just want to take a um, little—I don't know if you can really speak to this, but I do know that back when the Trump-Pence administration took office back in 2017, the first thing they did was implement that, like, kind of international gag—
1: Global gag rule.
0: Global gag rule, which basically pulled any sort of American funding from any— Any sort of Planned Parenthood-esque nonprofit internationally that provided any sort of contraceptive care, Planned Parenthood-esque services, they were like, no, we're not helping you anymore. And it was even more comprehensive than the Bush global gag rule. Yes, it was. Um, Okay, so that's that. Then you have the whole, like, first two years of the administration trying to subvertly uh, get rid of the Affordable Care Act and make sure that we can revert to a place where um, insurance companies can discriminate against people with pre-existing conditions. So that was, like, the next two years. Now, in 2019, uh, we do have the, there's, I think there's, I I, I know, like, six states off the top of my head from following the ACLU that have blocked or filed blocks for, uh, like, abortion or heartbeat bills in the Uh states, like Mississippi, Missouri, Georgia, Ohio, Alabama. It's one more somewhere. Um, So, There's a few things. So, like, you know, obviously this country was founded on the idea of, like, separation of church and state. And it does feel like this is a very um, um, coordinated, like, uh, attack, like, with a religious idea in mind. That, like, you know, this is, like, our deeply held religious beliefs that life starts at, you know, birth. Because that is, like, a Christian fundamental, like, belief. Because, like, there are other cultures and other religions that do not believe this. Like, and, you know, what if you're atheist? And so I think that there's just, like, a lot of areas where it's, like, why is your moral compass, like, being legislated to dictate other people's Um, lives, especially when that same moral compass is like, you know, so broken in other places in these very same people's lives that are enforcing or or trying to um, legislate what happens to women's bodies. We have Melinda Gates on, getting curious, and she's incredible. And she wrote a book called um, The Moment of Lift. And she taught us a lot about how when women and and Developing countries are given access to birth control and to reproductive care. Often, that is associated directly with them moving up and, and being able to have upward mobility economically. Because when families are given the power to dictate when and how they're going to have children, they're able to educate the children better, provide better lives for the children, and really be in the driver's seat of like planning for their life. So it's like, why is it that and and you know Title X is a, a program that benefit or that a lot of people of color and uninsured people use so it's it's a it's a grant service that that helps people of color and also people that don't make a lot of money don't have insurance and those aren't the same thing because there's also a lot of white people who are served by title you know it's because there's low income and then there's mar, like there's all sorts of like intersectionality to like marginalized groups so i just keep thinking i'm like why is it that this guy who's been married 3 times Uh, is married to an immigrant, um, is one of the richest 1%, and then this fucking Christian nightmare of a vice president who we have, why do they want to make sure that people who don't have money and can't afford babies keep having babies? Why do they want to do that? Is it the mass incarceration crisis? Is it so that we can keep making people to put in these jail cells? Is it—it just doesn't make sense because we don't want to take care of the babies. They want to make sure that people who can't have it. So I just, I'm like, what's the end goal here? Like, who there? I just feel that like there's a deeper, more insidious, coordinated attack here that feels like a modernized. Um, it, it's kind of like the thirteenth with Ava Duver- or DuVernay. Like, it feels like they don't want their source of people to marginalize, uh, imprison, um, effectively enslave in our mass incarceration system. They don't want that tap to dry up, and th- that's what my worry is.
1: I mean, look, I think, I think what you're hitting on is these interlocking systems of oppression, right? I mean, because obviously we cannot ignore the the impact that just fundamental racism that white supremacy has had on this country and creating and limiting access to, uh, to care, you know, whether it's healthcare, whether it's access to education, whether it's access to transportation, to jobs, all the things that actually impact our ability to be free, to live free. And these attacks, um, you know, um, are really when you when you layer on race in that way, and you layer on our ability to to just um, you know, to just get on on a bus and have reasonable access to a health center that is a couple blocks away, and to be able to you know, like you said, something something's going on down there. I need to figure out figure out what that is to be able to just walk in and not have to worry about whether or not you can you can pay for a test. But you can actually get the care that you need because healthcare is just a fundamental freedom. It's a it's a way for us to actually um, express ourselves and 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 to live free. And so, you know, my concern. Um, and there was this young woman who spoke so beautifully in um, in an event I was in last week, and she was um, she talked about how she became Planned Parenthood activist and how when she was younger she had uh, she had gotten pregnant and she went to her she you know luckily. She could go to her mom. Her mom brought her to a Planned Parenthood. And, you know, she's recounting the story and she just keeps thinking. She she just kept saying, you know, like, I just at that moment I stopped dreaming. I just stopped dreaming because I didn't know, you know, what was going to come before me. And everything that I thought about, everything I dreamt about just was starting to flow to, to to go away. And the idea that she could, that she could really focus, um, you know, that she could seek an abortion that she could um restore her ability to dream and to imagine right because that's really at the core of what freedom is our ability to imagine life, what liberty, our life of happiness. exactly what it's going to be and you know and i just thought like like yes that's exactly why we're why we're doing this work and that's exactly what they're trying to do is take that opportunity to be free away. So, you know, I don't, you know, I, I won't go so far as to conspiracy theories because I'm not going to give them that much credit. Yeah. <laughs> but I will say they are benefiting from these systems of oppression that give them power, that give them privilege, and that allow them to do all of the crazy that they're doing.
0: Um, so we're going to take a really quick break. You're going to probably listen to me tell you about, like, gorgeous English muffins or, like, my cats or, like, God knows what's coming up. But we'll be right back with more Alexis McGill-Johnson right after the break. Welcome back to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness, and uh, we're just really having a gorgeous conversation with Alexis McGill Johnson, acting president and CEO of Planned Parenthood uh, Federation of America and the Planned Parenthood Action Fund. Every time you go into like an official congressional meeting, I hope you don't have to like do that entire intro because <laughs> that is a it is a title and a half, honey. But I love it. it, is, it is. If you listen to Getting Curious, you know we love titles around here. So, uh, but that that's a long one. It, you, um, so anyway, so I have a, uh, another question about Title Ten and. and you know, so let's say you don't have insurance and you feel like there's something going on or you have a you're having a maybe you're discovering that you're pregnant. Maybe, you, you know, you don't have insurance. You don't have a doctor. You walk into an emergency room like you don't. What if you don't? I mean, where do you like if there's if there's not a Planned Parenthood clinic, like is there walk in clinics? Is there where do people like I mean, because that is where I knew to go when I was uninsured. And when I was 25 and I had something going on that I needed help with, I it, it was Two thousand and twelve, it was like I think Obamacare was like not available to get purchased yet. It was still all going down. Mm-hmm. Um and even if you could, I actually maybe you could, but I was still twenty five, so I was like under my mom's or something. I just can't remember, but I needed I needed to get a checkup and yeah. that's where I knew to go. So where people just won't go,
1: yeah, and I think that's what we have actually seen is that when people don't have access to healthcare, or when the when the health centers move, you know, close or they're too far away, um, you know, Title X was one of those programs that was actually really um, intended around kind of rural areas, right? Or you know, your ability to drive a reasonable distance again just to get health we take for granted living in the city or living kind of in LA or wherever that we can actually just you know get down the street and it will be right there. But other people have to drive like, you know, like hundred miles to yeah. actually get healthcare. care. Um, and so where do people go if 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 they don't have access to those places, they either will have to drive farther, right, to find that access to the to the uh to a hospital, to an emergency room, um, or they will just forego the care. And that, you know, for Planned Parenthood, you know, in in the in the decade I've been around, what I've seen is that we talk broadly about sexual and reproductive health care, right? That is kind of at the core of what we do. But oftentimes, that's the first point of entry into the health care system for a lot of folks. So they're coming to us because, you know, perhaps because they have a, um, a sexual reproductive health care need, uh, but they may have other things that they are concerned or worried about. And our ability for our providers to to refer them to the right places where they can get, you know, uh, care at cost or or, or at no cost um, is really such an asset and benefit to the community, uh, to the communities that we serve. So, you know, what we've seen, what we've seen in, in, in other states is that people will forego care. We've also seen is that, you um, know, you know, when people don't have access to STI screenings, the rates of STDs go up in communities.
0: Yeah, so let's talk about that. So this year, the Trump administration forced uh, Planned Parenthood out of Title X, which happened in what month? August. So that happened in August. That was like last, like yeah, just last month. August 19th. Yeah. And so when we've, but they've done this in like state-by-state cases because like, and I I know that like an or there's been cases where we have explain to me like how we know that cases have shot up.
1: Yeah, exactly, because other states have been forced out and um and or or decided determined that they could not comply with an unethical gag rule and um and what happens in those cases. I just want to
0: slow that down really quick. Oh, sorry. No, I no I I love it. So, but basically, we've ha- we've seen in states where I think they were Republican controlled states. So we had Iowa and New Hampshire. New Hampshire, which is not Republican controlled, isn't New
1: Hampshire kind of weird? No, yeah, but I'm saying like, like you, you have, um, yeah. We, there's a whole problem with the state legislatures. That's you know,
0: the the. have covered that. <laughs> I'm getting curious too. Okay. We, you know, we know how important state legislatures are.
1: Yes, and so thank you for your work. Thank you for your conversation. because yeah. it's all building um, to understand the impact, right? Like the actual public health impact when you don't have access to Title X and people who are used to to relying on um, a place like Planned Parenthood or another provider, and they're able to to go in and get tested at no cost, um, they will forgo the testing, and they will, you know, continue thinking, you know, perhaps thinking that they're okay. For sure. But I
0: want to talk about how what has happened at a federal level with the Trump-Pence administration forcing Planned Parenthood out of Title X has happened at a state level on a smaller scale leading up to this. And once those things have happened, we've seen in those states that gonorrhea rates, chlamydia rates, STI infections went up. Yes. Also, on another level, we know that antibiotic resistance, this is just food for thought, y'all. If you live on the coast and you have family in the middle of America, like, let them know. We know that gonorrhea and chlamydia antibiotic resistance is raising across the world. So when people have infections for longer, and, like, that is not good. You want people to get treatment. You do not want people who are infected with any STI to be proliferating the STI by not getting treatment. Um, So that is just, like, a really... uh it's just a really, really big deal. So do you know—can you speak to, like, how state legislatures interact with funding Planned Parenthood?
1: So the, the money would funnel through the state, right? It would be granted to the state, and then the state legislature would determine how it would get, um, get allocated, right? So the state legislature would—or go through a state agency, rather, he- uh, the healthcare, um, health care—health agency for a state would—you um, know, an organization like a Planned Parenthood has to apply— for the funds to be dispersed, right? So they have to prove that they are able to provide the quality of care that they can meet the caseload that they can, you know, uh, engage in their services um, is, uh, is as good as it can be, and that they're and so so you know, essentially they get accredited by the state to actually um, comply with the grant.
0: And this is why, like, knowing who your locally uh, locally elected leaders is so important. I mean, just like a few months ago, you had that state rep in Ohio who was talking about, like, LGBTQ plus issues, and she was, like, really just, like, nightmarish. I mean, there are quotes that come out of state legislature's mouth across the country that are just, like, crazy and are so identified with their religious ideologies, and they are, like, Literally legislating with their religious ideologies—it it, is—it is so shocking to me. Um, but it really shouldn't be because it's really—it's—it's it's how so much um, racism and oppression has continued to be so pervasive in this country. Um, you know, because a lot of that is based in like police, people's like it's veiled thinly in religious stuff. This is another thing. I think that on a more uh, macro scale of, of Planned Parenthood is. is often Planned Parenthood gets reduced to this idea that it's an abortion place. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that has been something that's been very effectively billed uh, by the GOP to, to do that. And that is just, in fact, like not what it is. So one thing that we know is, isn't it like the Hatch Amendment that says that like, that no. hide, hide. The Hatch is like some other, is enough? <laughs> All these H. Amendments. Element, yeah. But the Hyde Amendment. And that actually, you know, we've, we've heard that like the ACLU, and, and we've seen that a lot of the Democratic candidates have committed to repealing the Hyde Amendment because like we just previously stated, like we talked talked about with Melinda Gates. It's like um, when people are given the, the right and the access to be in the driver's seat of their reproductive futures, they are also given a better chance for economic betterment and for their communities. It's just better across the board. And I think another thing that I just wanted to hit really, really quickly, as long as we're talking about that and then I'll move on, it's that I think too often we're quick to think that in the United States, we're not a developing country. Mm -hmm. There are parts of the United States, uh, there are people that are in Los Angeles that are dying on the street, like literally from homelessness and complications with homelessness, uh, from not having access to all sorts of treatment. Um, Skid Row, there there are so many parts of this country that do not have access and I think would be on par with places that we would very much consider a developing country. So I think we're often too quick to think that like we are somehow above other people's issues, like we are very much dealing with with issues of poverty um, and developing nation esque issues right here, depending on where you are.
1: No, I, that's absolutely right, and we have actually a global arm to the work that we do, so we are serving um, populations uh, all of you know in in um, in Latin America and Africa. And what's what's so interesting, right, is that the lessons that we're seeing over there are things that we're now using to get um, people access to care in in some of the states that have gone dark for us.
0: So, oh, some of the states that have gone dark for us—what does that mean?
1: Meaning that, that where there's like very there's either one health center or no provider or no access, right? So, so that's like our to,
0: Alabama, like Kentucky. Yeah. The, yeah. Now mm-hmm. that's why this is like such a big issue. Um, when you so I mean obviously for reproductive health care that is a huge issue. Another h- issue of public safety is STI screening yes. and people having access to STI screenings. So for people that like live in Alabama or live in, um. Kentucky, like single, I mean, what do you do if you don't have a car or you don't have, if there's no bus or if it's like, like there's just so many things like to, to getting to that access when it's made harder. Um, And so I just guess what are, So the – or the Hatch Amendment. Hyde. Jesus uh, loves us. So the Hyde Amendment is one issue. um, Right. And so the
1: Hyde Amendment, right, which means that, like, no public money can be used to fund abortion.
0: So would that mean that basically, like, this whole time, like, if someone did get an abortion at Planned Parenthood, they had to pay for it themselves?
1: Uh, it depends. Uh, or they had
0: to get like some sort of different grant or something. Yeah,
1: and it, it it depends on what the what the state is and where they can get access. But but what the Hyde Amendment does is force um, Planned Parent or Plan any provider to separate its funds out. So any any reimbursement that it's getting from Medicaid or or other um, you know other programs like Title X are not used for. And basically, uh, that's of just
0: to not ruffle the ultra Christians feathers. And just so you know, you guys can't see this, but, like, yes, yes, body <laughs> language. Yeah, no, yes. <laughs> um, but so, or, you know, or, or whatever, um, which is what your body language said. Uh, so, um, but what are all—really quick break, you guys. I want to get into more about what Planned Parenthood does. But we're going to have to hear more about something gorgeous, I'm sure. Welcome back to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. So really where we were picking or leaving off from is, is what else does Planned Parenthood do?
1: Yes. And I want to come back to I mean, because you said that it's not all that we do. Abortion is not all we do. And that is a misconception. But we do provide abortion yeah. where we can. And we do it unapologetically. Yes. And I think that sometimes people try to put the, well, it's only 3% of what you do. So, like, why do you talk about it all the time? Yeah. I mean, we're not going to be, you know, apologizing and for we doing shouldn't. the work, right? So it is a, it is a portion. Of, abortion is what we see in a full range of reproductive health care what else we do is we offer sti screenings we offer a- education about um about sex and uh our and our bodies and our identities um, we offer cancer screenings um some of our clinics are um our health centers are working on um, offering transgender care some of our clinics are offering primary care so it is a, it is a full spectrum certainly of sexual and reproductive health care including abortion um, but other areas that we we're, we're actually um, building out as well
0: yeah, um I want to go back to the abortion stigma because I think stigma is just like a huge issue across the board. Um, you know, abortion is healthcare, yes. period. Um, when it's not treated as healthcare, like people die and it's, and it's not okay. I mean, it is absolutely healthcare period. So, but I do notice that when I was trying to explain that, you know, just now it's like, like I've almost been conditioned to have a little bit of shame around it because it's like, well, it's only 3%. It's like, so I think it's really important that you brought that up and I want to kind of expand on it a little yeah. bit because, um, I am someone who does not have uterus and ovaries. I am not able to get pregnant despite my years and years of efforts. And I think that um it is really important for people that do not that do not have the ability to uh, be pregnant can really think about what that stigma is to accessing healthcare. Yeah. Because it is healthcare. Um so when we think about the like that conversation because I think what the GOP has done, they have militarized the, or weaponized the idea of abortion and created that as, like, this, like, moral issue. So when we're trying to talk to people about Planned Parenthood um, and just about abortion being healthcare, like, how can we not do what I just did with you? Which is, like, when we're talking about it, like, how can we take yeah I yeah take sti- no talking. no,
1: no, absolutely. no, take the stigma out of it, right? I mean, the stigma essentially is shame, right? That's what we that's the concern um that we are um grappling with. I, you know, the way I talk about it is I talk about the number of of women who have had uh, abortion, right? So one in four women in their lifetime will have had an abortion, right? One in three women, I think, or one in three Americans will have heart disease, right? So you think about things that are normal, um, Issues that people deal with in the course of their healthcare. To me, the number alone suggests that we need to be treating this as a normal, one of the safest medical procedures in uh, possible. And um, and yet we are targeting people who access abortion. We are targeting providers who offer abortion, organizations that support abortion. All of that together has created this incredible shame, this incredible stigma. So I think we have to, you know, what I've seen over the last few years is just people telling their stories, telling the the whys, giving more context to it so that you're actually putting – a um you know you're just you're 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 humanizing the experience and you're not just listening to you know um some person's perception of of a moral perception of of what they believe you know they they would do in a particular situation or what should be done. You're actually giving more context to to the um the experience. And I think that actually, you know, storytelling is the is one of the most amazing ways of actually combating stigma, and allowing people to Understand what's operating,
0: and like I just felt like when I was asking you about it, like I almost was like baking in an apology for for Planned Parenthood, like providing abortions, period. And that's really what I want to like pull that away from because mm-hmm. really it's like oh, it reminds me of, like when my therapist like when I have to set a boundary with my mom and my th- and then my mom will like respond to me having like set the boundary, and then my therapist is like yeah, but you don't have to pick that up because like that's their issue. Yeah. So really, it's kind of just like you know, it's like. It's, someone's um, grappling with someone else's decision to get health care or receive an abortion, it's it's their issue to grapple with, like their own moral issue. It's not the person getting it, and it's not Planned Parenthood. It's like the people that are trying to like... So I, I just, I guess, I, I mean, I obviously don't have all the answers, but I just, um, yeah, I just really noticed how like when I was talking to you about it, my almost feeling like I need to apologize for abortions from the people that are so moved by it was like baked into our talking about it. It's like, you can have all the feelings you want to have about healthcare, care, but like... That doesn't change the facts. Yeah. And I mean,
1: at the end of the day, you know, our position is, you know, we need to let that decision be in the domain of the person seeking the abortion, their partner, their provider, their, you know, their God, their family, whomever they want to invite into that conversation. Or they could just make the decision by themselves. Yeah. Right? I mean, like, that's that's where, where it is. And so, you know, I think— it is nice to be able to say, you know, or it would be a luxury to be able to say, let's not care about how those other people feel. But but because the stigma is so present and because it, it does impact that internal decision-making, right? So instead of, you know, like, do I deserve to be free, right? Mm. I mean, like, we're— like, like I should be able to make that decision about my—what what I consider to be um, my access to dreaming or imagination based on, you know, what I need to do in that moment. Like, who else should be in that decision other than the person?
0: So how do you think we can—we'll get to the other stuff I said, but yeah. how do you think we can get to—how um, can we— de-stigmatize and de-weaponize the conversation around abortion in this, you know, not to quote hideous Sarah Palin, but this mainstream media day, like, with how that they have weaponized it. And with Roe being under the threat that it is, like, how can we de- because we have to escalate it, but at the same time, like, de-escalate these people who are so firely and passionate about, like, imposing their deeply held religious beliefs on the rest of us.
1: So again, I I just keep coming back to culture. I mean, and and you know, as like a, a cultural storyteller, as someone who's living in, in 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 the popular culture world as well, like you just can't discount the impact of seeing those stories. Like I think about Kerry Washington on um, on Scandal. Remember when she's pregnant with Fitz's? Um,
0: uh, pregnant with Fitz? Oh my God, I think I like left that season. I think. Oh. Oh, my God. Uh, honey, this is the thing. Once that president got shot in the head and then was, like, literally running the country two weeks later in season two, it was really hard for me to get over his, like, recovery from that head wound so fast. Like, I love Shonda so much. But, like, I need to, like, jump back in on, like, season five and, like, just cleanse my palate from that season two. That was—it just had a little season two issue. But I I, lo- I did continue on season three, but I think—sidebar. what sidebar.
1: But what was so important about that yeah, moment, and I love yeah. Shonda, too, and, I mean, I'm like— I've like, never <laughs> met her.
0: Like, I don't know her like that, but, like, I, I also, like, love all of her work. So, like— well, you know. she's actually
1: a proud Planned Parenthood board member. So, which we love. Say, yeah. yeah. Um. So I bring that up also because, um, because the story that she told, and spoiler alert, you know, essentially she did not tell. Um, the president, she just made the decision, right? With her provider, with whoever else she consulted internally that we saw off camera. And she came home and she sat on her white sofa and she had her glass of wine, right? That that, that to me, the normalization of a, you know, safe legal procedure, medical procedure, and her ability to, you know, to engage with the rest of her life to me was, was what was so important, right? It wasn't this, you know, back in the day, we used to do these roundtables with storytellers all the time and, and showrunners, and they would say, do you know how hard it is to get an abortion on, you know, on on mainstream TV? Because the minute you add it to the the script. Um it goes up, you know, through the directors, all the way up through the producers, all the way up to the head of the network. And then you have to justify it. So it's gotta be, you know, the abortion plus the plane crash, plus the, you know, like the crazy terror shooting. Yeah, exactly. And so it has to all make sense, right? And what you're doing is actually you're you're further creating the stigma. Like it's gotta be this incredible, you know, um, in you know, in, in insane experience to justify and you know, no justification needed. Yeah. It's safe, it's legal.
0: Yeah. And it just needs to be kept as such. Yeah. So moving on from that, um, there's so many other things that Planned Parenthood does that are so important to keeping everyone safe and to keeping everyone um, able to keep dreaming and to keep, um, you know, realizing like all of their potential and what they want to do in life. Um, And I think that part of you know, why even we just had the previous conversation around, like, abortion stigma is because the incredible job that people have done in making this a stigmatized issue. And just like that, there are um, so many other issues that Planned Parenthood deals with and helps to uh, fight against and helps to protect people with um, that we really don't even get to hear about because of the noise around, you know, this, uh, around abortion. Um, And I think that it's really important to talk about that because, we were just starting to, and then I interrupted you to go back to talk about abortion stuff. So tell us more about everything that Planned Parenthood really does.
1: Uh, well, no, I mean, I've, I've laid it out in terms of, you know, we obviously we offer STI screenings. We offer cancer screenings. Um, you know, we have community education programs. Many of our Planned Parenthood affiliates, they work in, um, in schools. Uh, so, you know, so the education really starting young. You know, we have some states that actually, you know, only teach abstinence surprisingly um which is really dangerous because it is incredibly dangerous and we see increased um teen pregnancy um Oh is that going up in those places? Yes, absolutely. There's of
0: course there's a direct correlation. No. We've been doing so good about thinking about teen pregnancy kind of going down. Well, teen down. pregnancy
1: is going down. I'm saying in the states but where absolutely But that's what I'm saying. Is, I, know, yes, I know I know I know but, yeah, but yeah. so
0: you we're able to create like the reverse of what we want.
1: Yes, because yeah. we're not giving access to basic information about um about healthcare about how our bodies work. And you know, we can talk a lot about abortion stigma, but but there's there's stigma around sexual and reproductive health generally, right? Around, you know, and it starts like very very early all the way up to like, you know, um my mom a couple of years ago was saying something like, you know, um I need to I need to like deal with something down there. And I was like down there? I was like, what is down, like, your toes? Your knees? Yeah. I was like, down there. And she like she, it, she just could not bring herself to say the word vagina. And it just struck me at, like, how much we we take in this stigma about our bodies, about how we function, that is so challenging and problematic. And so Planned Parenthood has, has been, you know, working um, on the front lines of making sure that stigma broadly is, is something that we address and tackle with, because if you cannot talk about your body and what, what's happening to it, then you can't seek the right treatment, which means that you can't, you know, get better if you need to, um, and and you won't feel like you actually own your body, right? And I think that's at the core of it, right? The Ownership of 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 our our bodies, of our identities. Um, when people come to us at Planned Parenthood, they're coming to us because they know they're going to get non-judgmental care, and they're going to get um, care that affirms their identities, that affirms who they want to be, and gives them the options to do that. And so, um, so all that to say, um, that's a lot of what we do. Um, but that's the spirit also in which we do it.
0: How does Planned Parenthood trade its providers um, across the country to be able to give that care to, like, LGBTQ plus people, L- people that have, like, different experience with gender, have a different experience with sexuality, which when you have a different experience of gender and sexuality, you're going to probably have, like, a different experience with, like, STI exposures, means of having sex, uh, different needs for, you know, ways of protecting yourself, etc. Um, how does Planned Parenthood train it's people in, like, you know, because, I mean, I would assume, aren't there probably cities where, like, there's only, like, a Planned Parenthood? Like, for, like, or even states where like, that's, like, the only place for a long way. And there, there is a really big misconception that, like, LGBTQ plus people are, like, only on the coast and only in big cities. But there is, like, a thriving, gigantic, beautiful um, population of LGBTQ plus identified people that do live in rural America and are often faced with no care or really highly stigmatized care um, at other places, Um, like, even when we were in Atlanta, like, I'll share, like, I went to a walk-in clinic because I had, like, an issue, um, and I was so shamed by the nurse at this place, because I was like, well, you know, I like, the show's about to come out, and there was this, like, and I was like, you know, I was like, I probably won't be able to have, like, a gorgeous, like, you know, experience with two other couples that wanted to, so, you know, so I did, and so then I told this fucking lady, because, like, a week later, I felt a little weird, and she was like, well, you know, you could have just, like, not done that. Like, you could have just, like, not had that experience with those people, and then you wouldn't be here visiting me. And I was like, so I was like, here's the thing, fucking blonde lady. I told you what I did so that you would have a clear picture of what I was exposed to because I want you to know what I think I was exposed to so that we can, like— Test accurately, and and I didn't really share my experience with you, so you could shame me fucking deeply about like the decisions I made with my body. Um, so how do we do that, or how does Planned Parenthood like train people to be able to give that sort of provide that care for people that have like different sexualities and gender experiences?
1: So, um, so I totally appreciate. It. I think that the, the the care is 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 actually the same. The experience may be different in terms of what people are bringing in and needing their identity affirmed, but the care is actually the same, um, and it is the same high quality, non judgmental care that we provide, you know, everyone who is straight and and cis or gender non-binary or LGBTQ, right? I mean, most people, um, not most people, but but, uh, what we see is that a lot of, um, particularly our younger populations who are LGBTQ, are coming in um, also for education, right? For education in a way that they can affirm their identities or kind of um, reconcile what their experiences are. Um, But the care... You know, it's the, it's the same pap smear. It's the same, you know, um, you know, cancer screening, STI screening, those sorts of things. And
0: just to be clear, like, in places, like, where the gag order is instituted, mm-hmm. like, on a statewide or national basis, like, if you were in a—if there was a Planned Parenthood in a place like Ohio or Alabama that wanted to have, like, let's say, like, a thing at one of their locations to have, like, an LGBTQ plus, like, sex education night, mm-hmm. would they not be able to have that anymore because of the gag order? Like, or can we still provide that? Like, if the state legislature, like, teaches abstinence, like— can Planned Parenthood still serve that that community of LGBTQ plus people? Oh, well,
1: like to be clear, Planned Parenthood actually was forced out because we decided um, that it was more important for us to do that work and to allow our doctors— to offer the um, the the information, the full range on of abortion. information yeah. on abortion, but that doesn't limit us from being able to do the work that we need to do uh, to serve LGBT so communities. Literally. So literally, yes, no, our doors staying open. We're fighting to keep them open. We're you know, call, well
0: keep your keep your exactly. racist oppressive money exactly. Pence.
1: Yes, and but but you know, we're also on the phone right with Senator Murray and Senator Schumer, and we're saying, you know what, you need to restore Title X because we still need to continue to do this at at the you know to serve the capacity. It's the public health issue because if
0: we could if we could pass that at a federal level, wouldn't would that usurp the states that have like opted out, or that would, or could Congress and Senate like overrule that Trump Pence order?
1: Uh, well, not overrule it; they would put it in the spending bill, right, and the appropriations bill. Uh, that's the vehicle that we have currently right now. Um, it still would have to be signed
0: hmm. by
1: the Trump administration. So we have to. But fight. they could
0: basically use this as a bargaining chip absolutely. to do a government shutdown if absolutely. they get, uh,
1: yes, absolutely. And that's the question: like, will will this health care actually be? Um, you know, be the chip that they take.
0: Um, Okay, so we have, like, a few minutes left. Um, uh, uh, But I just want um, to—I will share this, and I'm going to not cry doing it, Um, but I might cry. So um, you read my book. I did. And um, you are one of the first people outside of, like, four of my closest confidant people who have read it. And um, part of why I wanted to— Work with Planned Parenthood is because um, when I was diagnosed with HIV, I was tested, I was rapid tested at Planned Parenthood and was given a preliminary positive at Planned Parenthood and um, was referred to um, my first doctor from Planned Parenthood. And um, for what would have been, you know, the worst possible day that you could imagine as a young um, person, um you know, there were people that cared for me and were compassionate with me and made sure that I had an appointment a week later where I was able to have an incredible doctor who um, gave me a full panel and I was able to figure out, like, what medicines were going to work on me, what where my, um, where my virus was. Uh, I was immediately in the right care and immediately had access to the medication and the information that I needed to know that um, my life wasn't over and that um, it actually wasn't the worst day. And actually, that day was like the beginning of the rest of my life. Um, and had I not had access, I mean, I I don't think I had insurance at the time. I could not have gotten tested in my hometown. I lived in St. Louis. Um, and having that access literally saved my life. and And it also probably stopped me from unknowingly giving it to other people because that's the whole thing. I mean, one in seven people who are HIV positive don't know that they are. And when you don't know that you're positive and when you're not on medication, that's when you're the most likely to spread the virus. Um, And we know that because of cultural stigma that... um, Men who have sex with men, and specifically men of color, uh, black men and Latino men, also are have a higher risk of contracting HIV. And also because of that, women of color, yeah. specifically black, black women. women, are the highest right. rate of HIV infection. Um, and they have been for a long time. Um, I mean, it, that has been an issue in like the in the African-American female community for, and it's the amount of information that we cannot and do not share is proliferating the spread of this disease. And actually I do think it's really getting worse under the Trump-Pence administration because for the first time since 1992, we don't have an HIV AIDS advisory council because they left in protest like in 2017 because of the defunding of Planned Parenthood and because of the constant attack on um, information by the Trump-Pence administration. So all that to say, um, I wanted to work with Planned Parenthood and I wanted to meet you because um, Planned Parenthood has meant a lot to me in my life. Um, and so I just want to say thank you.
1: Well, thank you. Um, thank you so much for your story, for being so open and being so candid for, I'm, I'm so glad Planned Parenthood was there for you. Um, you know, as I was, as we were walking in, I was telling you so, so much of your book resonated for me. It was just like everything from like to your experiences with, HIV, but also, you know, every other pop culture reference in the world. I don't know if we're even remotely the same age, but but there was so much that I kind of connected to, um, in large part because of my cousin Kathy, who uh, was diagnosed in 1995, a black woman who, um, you know, was an IV drug user, and um, my dad found, you know, found her. We'd heard that she might be sick, but we didn't really know what the, what was, and there was a lot of stigma, right? My father is a, you know, a provider, and could not, you know, brought her home, and, and she took a shower, she cleaned up, and then, you know, scoured the shower with with bleach. I mean, and so we, like, we, we were like practicing stigma constantly. And I remember I gave her like my favorite, um, I want to say like a, maybe Jordache. Jordache feels too young. But it was like I gave her my favorite jeans um, to put on. We are about the same size. And I remember she um, took them off and she wanted to give them back to me, but she didn't know if she could. And there was this moment in our eyes, and I, this is probably one of the last times I saw her. Um, there's a moment in her eyes where she was just grappling with the stigma, and we didn't know how to respond. Um, and I remember just saying, "Oh, it's okay. You can keep them," kind of thing. It just it, and it like it's still like this flood of memories kind of came back when I was reading your book because she lived with that stigma for so long. She never got treatment, and then she died in 2007. And at a time where she actually could have, you know, where protease inhibitors had come out. And so the stigma um, – I also worked on this book called Boundaries of Blackness with Kathy Cohen that talks about how the white gay community responded to the AIDS crisis in the 80s differently than the black community because of the stigma around not just sexuality but also drug use. And so the layers on, again, of oppression, the – the the Is um, that
0: because the – did the black community struggle more with drug use than the –
1: Both identities, right? So So there were both identities. I thought that
0: was like everyone was just doing lots of drugs in the 80s and 90s. Well still are.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, probably. Yeah. I mean, yeah, but but it wasn't, it was, it was IV drug use and it was also um and and uh and sexuality. So it was both of those identities. So if you'd said, you know, um this person had uh, was HIV because of drugs, it was still because of the, the stigma associated with sexuality, and so it was all wrapped up into a yeah. bunch of things, but they couldn't they couldn't separate any of it out. Um but the reality is um, that stigma, and again, these are it layers on these structural barriers as well. So you're you're adding stigma, you're creating, um, you know, less access anyway because you literally can't get to um, get to the to the health center. All of that compiled um, becomes um, such a huge barrier. So I'm so grateful for you sharing your story. Again, I think storytelling is the way to really combat stigma around HIV and any number of issues. I do believe that, um, you know, that's the work that we need to continue to do and to continue to tell our stories to congressional members, right, to, you know, to allow people to feel the freedom to get tested, to feel the freedom to know their status so that they can go and they can be, they can live free lives.
0: And I know um, we'll wrap up soon, but I know that 740,000 HIV AIDS tests were given by Planned Parenthood last year. Um, that is an incredible amount of work, um, and it's an incredible amount of work, of important work, um, of keeping people safe and able to dream, which I love that idea. Um, so I just, I think that that is, we had Masha Gessen on, Gessen on the show um, a few months ago, and she was, you know, excuse me, we had Masha Gessen on the show a couple months ago, and they were telling us about how um, how important it is to realize that immigration is an LGBTQ plus issue. Yes. Um, And I think, again, when we hear Planned Parenthood, um, especially in the LGBTQ plus community, I think that we think, okay, well, like, how does that really like affect me? And just to be so clear, it affects us so deeply and it affects us so across the board to such a fundamental level. So um, it is so important to communicate your support of Planned Parenthood to your congresspeople, to your elected representatives, to talk to your family members about it, to talk to people about it whenever it's uncomfy. Lean into that discomfort, Queens. We got to really get it talking. I know that you have got um, meetings to get to and, you know, Title 10 to protect um, Alexis (laughs) Alexis McGill-Johnson. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Actually, did I miss anything? Do you have any, like, yoga teacher training, like, at the end of the practice, you know, when it's like, I really wanted to do headstands, and, like, this fucking teacher didn't teach triangles (laughs) or headstands.
1: No yoga actually makes me angry.
0: Does it? <laughs> it does. It's it. That's like just, totally the opposite effect. You haven't found me. your. You just haven't found your one yet. Oh,
1: uh, no, okay. There's
0: like a million of them. There
1: probably is, and there are other things. I you know.
0: I bet you. Maybe you have you ever done like a power <laughs> like a power vinyasa one like to music to I
1: promise I will try I will seek that That will be the thing I will use to balance myself really the next year really quiet ones really
0: make me like kind of crazy I have to do like a power yoga like it's like athletic it's like there's music there's like fun people it's like it's fun
1: I'll find my practice I have yeah. other practices but I, I love, will find yeah. my practice yeah, I know you guys and I thank you so much exactly yeah because I need it yes, in order to do all the these most. things exactly thank all the you. things thank you
0: thank you You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. My guest this week was Alexis McGill-Johnson. You'll find links to her work and Planned Parenthood in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at JBN. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend, a family member, anyone really. Show them how to subscribe. Getting Curious is produced by Emily Bossick, Julie Carrillo, Ray Ellis, Harry Nelson, and Colin Anderson, and yours truly. See you next time. Hey